Good morning. My name is Ed Haynes. The scripture passage today comes from the New Testament book of Hebrews. I'll be reading from chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. For they heard an awesome triumph blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I am terrified and trembling. No, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven, who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, and to be sprinkled blood, and speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance, like the blood of Abraham. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Ed. <clears throat> There's a movie in our household that's been getting a lot of play lately, and that is the Lego movie. Uh, I think part of it was the release of the second Lego movie came out a while back, and we took Brenda to the theater to see it, and she got into the Lego movie, the first one and the second one, and then um, Colin got into the first Lego movie, and so that thing probably plays at least five times a week in our house, so we get a lot of play out of the Lego movie. And actually, the Lego movie, too, is showing at the Rivoli Theater in Cedarburg right now, uh, so you can go see that there. But we get a lot of play of the Lego movie in our home, and there's a scene in the Lego movie where the master builders are trying to steal this weapon from President Business, and President Business is the antagonist in the story, and the, the, the weapon is called the Craggle, which is actually crazy glue. And they're trying to steal the craggle from President Business because he wants to use the craggle to glue everything into its place because he's sick of the master builders building new things and changing the design. And so these master builders want to steal the craggle so that President Business can't use the glue to hold everything in place like he wants to. And so the, the master builders are going to come to this building called the Octan Tower, which is President Business's offices. And as they come up to that building, the pirate who's leading the crew is going to realize how formidable and how foreboding and how ominous and how impossible the task of going into the Octan Tower and stealing the Kragle really is. So let's watch a video clip as the master builders try to go steal the Kragle from President Business. Well, uh, I know that I, for one, am very excited to work with you guys to get into the Octane Tower, find the Kragle, and put this thing on the thing. And I know it's going to be really hard. Really but... hard? <laughs> Wiping ye bum with a hook for a hand is really hard. This be impossible! The last time we tried to storm Lord Business's office, we used every plan we could conceive. The result was a massacre too terrible to speak of. Who are you? The name be Metalbeard, and I'll tell you me tale of woe. Oh, great. Here we go again. I arrived at the foot of the tower with me hardy master builder crew, only to find the craggle was all the way up on the infinitieth floor, guarded by a robot army and security measures of every kind imaginable. Lasers. Sharks. Laser sharks. Overbearing assistance. 
and strange, dangerous relics that entrap, snap, and zap. And there be a mysterious room called the Think Tank. I barely made it out of that room with just me head and organs. As the pirate Metalbeard says, it's very difficult to get into the Octan Tower. So this crew of pirates and master builders come up to the Octan Tower, and as they come up to it, they realize the security measures that they have, and they realize the difficulty of getting into the tower. It's formidable, it's ominous, it's going to be an impossible task. And I show you that clip because in the same way, our author of Hebrews today talks about the Israelites coming to a, a mountain that is very ominous, very terrifying, very fear-inspiring, very awe-inspiring, just like the master builders came to the Octan Tower, and it was very formidable. So the Israelites came to this mountain, the Mount of Sinai, and it struck fear into their hearts. And the story of the Israelites coming to Mount Sinai begins with this man named Abraham. And God appears to Abraham, and God is going to partner with Abraham toward his goal of renewing his broken, fallen, and sinful creation. And God, in this partnership that he makes with Abraham, makes a promise to Abraham that Abraham is going to have lots of children and lots of grandchildren and lots of great-grandchildren. And Abraham is going to have so many descendants and kids that God is going to multiply them into a nation. And that nation is going to hold a special place in God's heart. And that nation will be God's people who spread God's reign over this earth. And so a few generations later, we meet this man named Joseph, who is a descendant of Abraham. And Joseph is living in Egypt at the time, and the family of Abraham is still living in Canaan. And Canaan has a famine going on. So what Joseph does is he moves the family of Abraham down to the land of Egypt where there is food. And the book of Genesis closes with the family of Abraham living safely and security, securely in the land of Egypt with plenty of food. And now we turn the page from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus. And in turning that page, 400 years go by. And when the book of Exodus opens, we find the Hebrew people in a very different situation than we left them at the end of the book of Genesis. Because we find the Hebrew people have now multiplied so much so that they are a people group called the Hebrews. And the Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, got wise to the circumstances and thought, well, I can exploit these people and use them as my slaves to build my city. And so we open up the book of Exodus and we find the descendants of Abraham multiplied into this nation called the Hebrews and they are enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt. And what God is going to do is he is going to raise up one of those Hebrew men named Moses. And Moses is going to be the leader who leads Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He's going to lead the Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt. And so he leads the Hebrews out of Egypt and he leads them through the waters of the Red Sea in this dramatic story where the people come to this lake and it's blocking their path from their escape from Egypt. So God divides the waters so that the people can walk through on dry ground. And even in more dramatic fashion, God uses those waters to drown all of the pursuing armies of Egypt that were trying to hunt them down and bring them back. And so after walking through the waters of the Red Sea, God has just delivered them from slavery in Egypt using this man, Moses. And now they're going to set their GPS for a mountain called Sinai. And the people of Israel, the Hebrews, are going to travel from Egypt south into the Sinai Peninsula 
to this mountain of Sinai. And it's at Sinai that something very critical is going to take place because God is going to renew his partnership with his people at that mountain in the same way that he handed the baton to Abraham and said, you're going to be my person who spreads my reign over this earth. Now he is going to hand the baton off to Abraham's descendants, this nation that he promised Abraham, and he's going to tell these people, you're going to be my people and you're going to spread my reign over this earth. Now coming to Mount Sinai must have been quite a thing. Because God is using this as a meeting place between him and his people. And so his presence is going to come down on the top of the mountain in the most dramatic of fashions. Here's how the book of Exodus describes the site that was Mount Sinai with God's presence coming down on it. It says this, all of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. So you could just imagine how foreboding and formidable this must have been with God's presence coming down on the mountain in the form of fire and smoke and this mountain just shaking. All right, And then this is what the author of Hebrews is going to pick up on when he talks about mountain. He says this, You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. And so the author of Hebrews is picking up on this description of Mount Sinai that we get from Exodus about God's presence coming down on the mountain in fire and in wind and in in smoke and all of this terrible, awe-inspiring stuff. And so I bring up the Octan Tower because in the same way that the master builders came to the Octan Tower and it was this impossible task and full of security and struck fear into their heart, the Israelites come to Mount Sinai and God's presence is up there shaking the mountain with smoke and fire and it must have been fear inspiring as they came up to the mountain. And so Moses himself is going to be so scared that the author of Hebrews is going to give us a window into Moses' take on the side of the mountain. Moses says this, he says, I was so frightened, or Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I am terrified and trembling, which is kind of funny when we read that, right? It's like, well, yeah, no, duh. (laughs) Of course he'd be terrified and trembling with a sight like that. And on top of it all, God is going to invite Moses up to the top of the mountain to meet with God so that God can give Moses the instructions and the partnership and the terms of the partnership that he's making with the Israelite people. And another reason why this mountain must have been so scary and so fear-inspiring is because God instructed them to mark off a boundary at the base of the mountain. And if anybody, or even if any animal, crossed that boundary and touched the base of the mountain, they would die. And so that would add to the terrifying sight that this mountain was, the knowing that if you touched that mountain, you would die. And now if you're Moses you're getting summoned up to the top of the mountain. So Moses has to climb up that mountain. And if I was one of those Hebrews and Moses got summoned up there, I'd be like, yeah, you go on, Moses. You you cross that boundary. Meanwhile, I'm going, I'm so glad it's not me that has to go up there, right? Like, yeah, you go. You meet with God on our behalf. You're the leader. (laughs) Let's see, where's the leader? Oh, it's Moses. You go, right? (laughs) I'd be like, you get on up there. And so of course, Moses is going to be afraid because he has to walk into a storm at the top of a mountain and cross a boundary line that means death for anybody else that's not summoned including animals. And so Moses has to go right up into this storm, into this terrible presence of the Lord, this shaking, smoky, fiery mountain to meet with the Lord. Now, they've located in modern day, they've located the general area that Mount Sinai is in. And there's a consensus that the peak that actually was Mount Sinai of the Bible is this peak called Jebel Musa. And this is a picture of Jebel Musa today. And you can see the mountainscape that is surrounding that area of Mount Sinai. And many of you, I feel like I'm 
preaching to the choir when I say this because many of you know mountains way better than I know mountains. I mean, some of you have skied on mountains, and I've never been, I've never wanted to put my life in danger like that, so I'm not going <laughs> to ski down a mountain. Um, the water is fine, thank you very much. You just f- fall right in. Um, but uh, some of you have skied down mountains, so, but many of you that have seen mountains, you, you know the feeling that you get when you look at a mountain and you see the awesome power of our God to create, to just speak into existence this massive landform. And it makes you feel extremely small and insignificant and powerless when you see that our God has the power just to say a word and um, uh, something gigantic like a, a mountain forms, right? I'm just recalling a story right now. I remember when we went to Alaska when I was in college, we went with the band. <laughs> Real cool. I went with the band. Um, so we went with a band to Alaska. And, uh, and uh, I remember uh, we flew into Anchorage and we always would stay in host homes. And that night we're staying at this host home and and um, we woke up in the morning, and we, and we looked out, and, and our hosts said, do you see that mountain over there? And we said, yeah, you know, and you see this mountain off in the distance. They said, that's a four-hour drive away. That's how far you're seeing, that you can see a four-hour drive away. That's how massive these mountains are. And so mountains can make you feel so small and insignificant. And as you look at the scenery around Jebel Musa, you can imagine how those Israelites must have felt so small and insignificant next to the mighty power of God who spoke all these mountains into into existence and is now appearing at the top in smoke and in fire and whirlwind. Here's a panorama uh, taken at the peak of Jebel Musa at midnight. And you can see the glowing towns below, and it's just beautiful. It's awesome. I, I hope someday to be able to visit there. I would love to visit Israel in general, but yeah, I would, it, it, this was taken at night. It's just incredible. And then here's a picture of the sunrise, and I'm told that groups will wake up um, you know, at like 2 a.m. and then hike up the mountain so that they're on top of there while the sun rises, and it's just this incredible sight. And so you can get a sense for how the Israelites must have felt coming to that impressive sight of Mount Sinai with God's presence descending upon it and how terrified they must have been knowing that were they to touch the mountain, they could die. And now one of their own has to go up there and meet with them. But the author of Hebrews is not talking about Mount Sinai. He is going to contrast Mount Sinai with a different mountain. He is going to contrast Mount Sinai and the terror there with a different mountain, and that mountain is Zion. Here's what he says. He says, you have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. No, you've come to a different mountain. You have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. He's saying, you have not come to Mount Sinai, and he's contrasting Sinai with a different mountain. He's saying, no, you have come to Mount Zion. Now, the word Zion makes us roll our eyes again and go, ugh, true to form, the author of Hebrews is throwing out his biblical jargon again, and it's making you go, like, come on, like, for real, just use regular speak, man, right? Because he loves his Bible jargon. He loves his lofty biblical words. He loves his lofty theological jargon. So what is Zion? Well, Zion can refer in general to the city of Jerusalem, or more specifically, it can refer to the temple within the city of Jerusalem. So when we talk about Zion, we're either talking in a general sense about the city of Jerusalem, or we're talking in a specific sense about the temple within the city of Jerusalem. So here's another picture. This is Zion today. This picture would be taken from someone standing on the Mount of Olives, looking west, and you can see the Kidron Valley there, and they're looking west at the city of Old Jerusalem, and then you can see the Temple Mount and the plaza that is the temple, and then uh, you can see the, the Dome of the Rock there, which is like an Islamic shrine. But this is the temple where the temple would have been located. And this is the current picture of 
city of Jerusalem and the temple. So this is Zion today. But the author of Hebrews isn't talking about this Zion. He's talking about a different Zion. The author of Hebrews is not talking about this Zion that exists were you to fly to Jerusalem today and see this. He's not talking about this Zion. He's talking about a future Zion. Here's a picture that John gives when he's seeing what heaven and earth will look like in eternity. This is a picture that John gives of the new heavens and the new earth. And he says this, he says, then I saw the lamb standing on Mount Zion. And this is the Zion that our author of Hebrews is referencing. Our author of Hebrews is not talking about the current Zion. He's talking about the future Zion that will last for eternity. Another word for it is the new Jerusalem or the new heavens and the new earth. Or many of us just say heaven, but I like to say new heavens and new earth to remind us that it's a a new creation that he's making and not just some sort of epistemological, like, like floaty around existence that is a reality where we live as embodied humans. But he's talking about the new Jerusalem, the new Zion. So he's not talking about Zion today. He's talking about the Zion of eternity, of the new heavens and the new earth. So he is contrasting Mount Sinai with Mount Zion. He's saying, you have not come to Mount Sinai, a place of fear and trembling. No, you have come to the hope of Mount Zion, the future Zion that we will live in eternity forever with Jesus. Now, what the author of Hebrews is going to do as his final statement in this section is he is going to insert someone in between these two stories that is the glue that holds these together. He's going to insert someone in between his contrast of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And this someone makes Mount Zion possible. Here's what he says. He says, you have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance, like the blood of Abel. Who's the one that holds these two together? You have come to Jesus, the one who makes Mount Zion possible. Today we celebrate Jesus, our King, who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, knowing that he would not leave until after he rose from the dead. Today we celebrate our King, who rode into Jerusalem knowing full well that he was riding to his death. And today we celebrate a king who comes not riding on a horse or a mighty steed, but who comes riding on a humble little donkey. And today we celebrate our king who comes not as some conquering war hero, but who comes as someone who conquers by death. He doesn't come with violence. He comes ready to submit to the violence of the cross in order to conquer the violence of death. Today we celebrate our king who rode triumphantly into Jerusalem to be a new kind of king, to be a king of kings. That's who we celebrate. And it is this king of kings who rides into Jerusalem that makes our going to new Jerusalem possible. Today we celebrate our king who rode into Zion so that someday we can join our king in Mount Zion. Today we celebrate our Jesus who rode into Jerusalem so that someday we can spend eternity with him in new Jerusalem. Today we celebrate our king who rode into Mount Zion knowing that later in the week he would shed his blood. And that shedding of his blood opens the way so that someday we can join him in new Zion. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that exciting? That's what we celebrate today. So Jesus begins his journey. And he mounts this donkey in a place called Bethphage. And Bethphage is located on the Mount of Olives, which is to the east 
of the city of Jerusalem. And so this is a Google map. I did the best I could. I wish I could just bring you all there. Um, You can kind of see the elevation. That's why I made that Mount of Olives label on a slant because it's kind of coming to a peak. And Bethphage is on the kind of the backside of the Mount of Olives. So he's going to come to Bethphage and he's going to begin his journey there. And what he's going to do is he's going to ride down the Mount of Olives through the Kindred Valley up to the Temple Mount. So here's, here's what he does. He comes to the village and he sends his disciples to find this donkey. He says this, go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. So he sends these disciples into the town of Bethphage and says, hey, you're going to find a donkey there. And why don't you untie that donkey and then bring it to me. And now here is a verse that I loved getting to in youth ministry. Because when we got to this verse in youth ministry, I would tell the students, here is your justification for taking anything you need. Okay? Because here's what he says. He says, if anyone asks you what you're doing, just say, oh, the Lord needs them. And he will immediately let you take them. So I told the kids, I'm like, you ever need something? Just tell them, oh, the Lord needs these. And then no one will ask you questions because it's the Lord. It's the best trump card ever. And I love telling the kids this because they remembered it. Because even months later, I remember having kids come to me, you know, and they would like take something off my desk and be like, Lord needs it, Bill. And like walk away. And I'd be like, hey, I taught them and they remembered. So I'm okay with it, right? But so he tells them, go grab these donkeys and then if, if if anyone asks you any question just say oh the lord needs it so remember that one if you ever need something just take it say oh the lord needs this <laughs> Alrighty. so jesus is going to saddle up his donkey in bethphage and today they believe there's a there's a church at the spot where they believe that he saddled up his donkey and that church is called the, the church of bethphage and there's a picture of that so they believe that jesus mounted his donkey here in bethphage and then he is going to ride down the mount of olives through that kidron valley and then you get a sense for the mount the temple mount because you have to make this pretty steep ascent to go up to the temple all right now when i was a kid they had this guy named Ray Vanderlaan. And everybody loved Ray. Everyone, any, anyone know Ray Vanderlaan in here? Raise your hand if you know Ray Vanderlaan. Oh my good. Well, Ben knows. Yeah, Ben's like, because he was Dutch. And yeah, I'm like, okay, I'm yeah, Dutch. And so it makes sense that everyone loved Ray Vanderlaan. So everything was Ray Vanderlaan. And um, he had these VHS tours of the Holy Land, okay? And everyone was, I remember all the adults, loved watching Ray Vanderlaan. And um, I went to K through 8 Christian school in Oostburg and one of my teachers, I remember, showed us one of these videos of Ray Vanderlaan. And it was the most boring thing I had ever seen. Okay, it was so boring. I'm like, you expect me to pay attention to this? This is literally a guy just standing in front of people on a bunch of rocks, like dressed in 90s garb, like talking about these rocks. And as a kid, you're way too young to appreciate this, right? It was just boring, boring, boring. So we all grow up at some point, which is really sad. And even worse, we all grow up into our parents. All right. And, uh, I'm, I'm grown up now, and I found my own Ray Vanderlaan. So I almost hate myself because I'm like, I found this other guy. He's my Ray Vanderlaan who does this drive-through. It's called Drive-Through History, and he does this series on the Gospels. And, and I'm like, man, this is great stuff. And I'm like, who have I become? You know, like, as a kid, I hated this stuff. And now, now, now I'm like, oh, this is really great. So I have my Ray Vanderlaan. His name is Steve, I think. And he's going to show you this. The, he's going to go on location and show you the ride that Jesus took took into the city of Jerusalem. So go ahead and play that clip, you guys. Now I'm standing on top of the Mount of Olives, about halfway between Bethphage to the east over there and the Golden Gate to the west. Now the Golden Gate has been filled with stone blocks, but you can still see its location right over there. Now in between the Golden Gate and me is the Kidron Valley. 
Back to the biblical narrative. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Mark 11, 9 and 10. At the triumphal entry, Jesus started on the Mount of Olives, up there to the east. He rode down here through the Kidron Valley and then up through the Golden Gate to the west. As he's coming down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley and then making his ascent up into Zion, into the city of Jerusalem. Now, I find it really interesting that the very first place that Jesus goes as he rides into Jerusalem is the temple. And he rides up that hill, up into the temple, and he goes in the temple, and the first thing he does is he kicks out all of the merchandise and all of the commerce that's happening in the temple courts because there was all this exploitation going on. People had turned this into a cash cow because they were selling animals for sacrifices, and so there was all this injustice and exploitation happening. And Jesus rides in there, and he angrily overturns the tables of these merchants and kicks them out of the temple. He goes into the temple and he plants his flag of his kingdom, as it were, in his father's house. Here's what Matthew says. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people, buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The very first act that he commits when he rides into Jerusalem as the king of kings is plants his flag in his house. And many years before, as he was a little boy, his parents took him to the temple and somehow he got left behind. And when they realized that they had left their, baby Je- or their boy Jesus behind, they turn back and they find him in the temple talking with the teachers and the rabbis. And the parents, Mary and Joseph, say to, Joseph, how, or say to Jesus, how could you have lost us like this? Like, we were so worried about you. And Jesus says, don't you know that you'd find me in my father's house? And I find it really significant that he goes and plants his flag in the temple because Jesus rides into his father's house so that someday we can join him in his father's house. That's the point that's being made today. Jesus rides into New Jerusalem, so someday we can join him in New Jerusalem. This is the king we have, for we have not come to the fear and trembling and the terror of Mount Sinai. We have come to the hope of a future with Jesus for all eternity in Mount Zion, made possible by Jesus. Today, Jesus rides in to Zion, so that someday we can join him forever in Zion. Today, Jesus rides in to Jerusalem, so that someday we can join him in new Jerusalem. Praise the King of Kings. Let's pray.